Today on WSJ Speakeasy Podcast, we're talking to Bob Prohl, author of the new novel, A Hundred Thousand Worlds, which is a sweet, poignant road trip novel for the Comic-Con age. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Welcome to the WSJ Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Mike Callia. I'm joined today by Bob Prohl author of the new novel, A Hundred Thousand Worlds. Uh, it's sort of like a road trip novel uh, for the age of Comic-Con, um, which actually San Diego Comic-Con kicks off next week. So this is a pretty well-timed interview. Uh, welcome, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And the book came out a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, yeah, it's been two weeks now. And uh, what kind of response have you been getting so far? It's been great. Uh, I've been sort of getting out there and doing a couple readings and and meeting some folks and and it's it's been nice you know you wait so long uh for the book to come out and uh <laughs> it's been a long build up so it's nice to actually see it in people's hands and how and long they think how long ago did you start actually like working on it uh probably f- uh four years ago wow yeah and did most of the writing about three years ago Wow, three years. So the, yeah. so you've moved on to other projects, I guess, huh? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so the story, um, the, the main story involves a mother and a son on a road trip across the country. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. The mother is the former co-star of a very X-Files-ish uh, TV program. Um, her son, uh, Alex, is very precocious, uh, very into storytelling, very into creating his own stories and reading stories. And they're on this trip uh, to bring Alex to his father, who is the uh, David Duchovny type, I guess, of that X-Files show. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I got a very Duchovny vibe from it. It's pretty pretty telegraphed that that that's kind of what I'm playing with there. (laughs) He even has a Californication type show that he's on. to, for there's a custody battle, so it's a bittersweet novel. Um, and then along the way, they uh, meet other side characters who are involved in one way or another in the comic book industry or the uh, the geek culture industry itself. As they stop at um, a variety of comic book conventions along the way, so my right away, I'm, this feels like such a well researched book. Did you spend a lot of time on the Comic Con circuit, kind of digging into this stuff? Uh, not quite on the circuit. I. Um was a sort of a regular at New York City Comic Con for a couple of years going in, and, and I've I've been a comic book reader for and and fan since I was a kid. Uh, when I was when I was in my teens, I would work. They weren't Comic Cons; they were comic book shows. But mm-hmm. I, I worked for a dealer, and we would go to. I would just sort of help lug comics around for uh, for a comic book dealer, and we they would basically be in the hallways of malls uh, in Buffalo. That was that was our. <laughs> That amounted to a comic book convention back then. It would be like twelve comic book dealers selling old back issues uh, in like a hotel ballroom. Um, so nothing quite at the scale of, of oh, yeah. what you see now. I was going to say, other than scale, how how have how has this culture changed, especially the uh, the exhibition part of it? I think it's changed pretty massively, even in the last like five years. You know, the demographics have shifted. Um, uh, for one thing, Comic Cons aren't largely about comics. They've really embraced a lot of other pop culture stuff, um, you know, be it movies, be it video games or anime. And along with doing that, you open up your audience. Um, you know, when I was when I was a kid going to Comic Cons, it was all white males. Um, hmm. You know, that was 
predominantly the, the public face of the culture at that time, and it's it's not anymore. Uh, I think last year was the first time that uh, demographically Comic-Con attendance nationally was was pegged at about even. It was like 48% male, 48% female, 4% non-binary. Wow. And, um, and that, you know, it, it looks like it's tipping the the other way and it's it's great to see that it's great to see it uh open up these things open up to a wider audience is it reflected in the work though that's moving a little slower um as as one would expect Mm -hmm. and but we are you're seeing more creators uh more artists more writers who are not sort of the traditional uh comic book creator um you're seeing more more women, more people of color um, involved in in creating the stuff, and, and again, it's it's great that it's happening. It it can't really happen fast enough, <laughs> uh, as far as I'm concerned, and it it's going to take a while before it catches up with the audience demographics. And one of the things about your book is that it it's not afraid to get into the the ugly kind of grind of being a comic book creator, whether a writer, whether we're talking about writers or artists, especially the ones that are working for the two major ones. Uh, in your book, you don't use the real Marvel or DC. You use Timely and National. They're, and, and none of the comic book characters mentioned in the book are real ones. Okay. But it's, it's a world that's very much ours. Hillary Clinton has mentioned and just as like one of the real world references. Um, did you talk to many creators um, over the years, or what kind of experience did you have with them? Because it seems like you have a lot of insight into the business. Uh, I did. I, I talked to a bunch of folks. Um, it would have been just the year before I worked on. Oh no, I actually I was at a residency working on this, and I left the residency for a weekend to come to New York City Comic Con. And um, and the great thing about New York City Comic Con is that um, Artist Alley, which is where the comic book uh, creators sort of hang yeah. out is still pretty accessible. It's not as overwhelming as some of the other parts of the con, so you can just walk up to people and talk to them. And so, yeah, I just went up with my notebook and said, I'm working on this book, and um, and sort of chatted people up. And I also had, I had a friend who was working for DC as an artist at the time and is now at, at Marvel, and I would sort of check in with him on, you know, just like basic economic stuff, like how much do you make per page? Like how do you pay your rent? Yeah, and that's interesting. How, how do they pay their rent? Especially like the the work a day mid tier kind of grunt, and that's not a knock. I mean, no, it's, we're uh, we're all out there making our living, living somehow. It's yeah. dicey, you know. And a lot of these folks are are freelance, yeah. and and sometimes that's better than being under full contract. Why is that? Uh, well, uh, I guess my, my understanding of exclusive contracts in comics is is a little sketchy, but. Um, it's not. It's it's still linked to page rate. It's still linked to production, wow. and it can end up sort of biting people uh, in the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most of the folks are they're paid. You know, artists are getting paid per page wow. and per printed page. So if something gets changed or gets canceled, they're not getting paid. So oh wow. Yeah, folks are. I mean, some people do better than others, obviously. But it's a right. it's a middle class workaday kind of industry which is which is interesting to me yeah because um, especially when you look at pop culture it's dominated by this kind of stuff right you know yeah and it's uh what's nice now is that a lot of uh creator crediting is is becoming more public and as these things as these characters and these intellectual properties get uh converted into films or, or television shows hopefully largely um 
companies are getting better about crediting the people that that created them. But mm-hmm. you know, crediting and paying are two different things. Right. Um, right. So you see things like when the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, movie came out. Bill Mantlo, who created most of those characters, was struggling to pay his medical bills mm. um, because he had been, you know, in the 70s, he was he was creating those work for hire. He didn't own those properties and didn't see much money when they uh, when they sort of made it big. Um, so you, you mentioned before that, you know, it's it's not just comic books anymore. I mean, when you I've only been to New York Comic Con. I haven't been to San Diego yet. But when you go to New York Comic Con, it's the Jacob Javits Center. It's massive. 150,000 people went last year. Um, and you have this big convention floor where you have a whole bunch of, you know, different <laughs> people set up shop. You know, and Marvel Comics has a big area, DC. And then there are the smaller comic uh, companies like Dark Horse. And then, then you have a bunch of movie setups. And, and there's all kinds of advertising. And then Artist Alley is like off to the side. It's still a big hall. But you're right. It's like if you wanted the classic comic book vibe, the classic Comic-Con vibe, that's where you would go. Um, when you were doing the research and you were out there talking to these artists and writers, were there any like stories that kind of just like stuck out to you and like like influenced you directly or or just one that might have but actually just stuck in your head and never made it into the page uh not, the page. not particularly i think the weirdest interaction that i that i had was actually after the book was was written and sold mm-hmm. um i had when i was writing it i it was it started out as a very different book and one of the scenes that i wanted to write was three comic book writers just sitting around and having a beer and because i'm lazy with naming characters i just named them after three <laughs> uh prominent comic book writers. But one of them, whose name was Gail, uh, became a much bigger character. Right. Uh, she just kept asserting herself. And um, she was based on the comic book writer Gail Simone. I've, yeah, I and have a feeling. So I was at New York City Comic Con, and I decided to walk up to Gail Simone and basically say, I have a book and you're in it, <laughs> which caused exactly the look of terror uh, from Gail that, that one would expect. I, I've since sort of mended those fences okay, uh, at other conventions. Good. All right. We're going to take a break right now. We're with Bob Prohl, author of 100,000 Worlds, a new novel. Uh, we'll be back in a sec. Hi, I'm Paul Vigna. If you do not subscribe to the Money Bee podcast, you are going to feel worse than a short seller on the day of a big rally. Go to iTunes and WSJ.com slash podcasts. You want to sign up for this one. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hi, welcome back to the WSJ Speakeasy podcast. This is Mike Calia. I'm joined by Bob Prohl, author of 100,000 Worlds, a new novel. It's essentially the the definitive novel for the Comic-Con age, I would say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, to flatter you. <laughs> no, that's fine. We're, we're talking, <laughs> like, we're digging into, the, like, kind of the business of this stuff because it's just so fascinating. And it is a... It is a prominent part of, of the uh, the novel, the workaday stuff. And, and Comic-Con isn't just about – we talked about it. It isn't just about comic books. It isn't just about comic book creators and companies. It's also, also about these people who kind of make their living almost on the fringes of this. And and there's a group – they're almost like a Greek chorus in the book, like um, the, the cosplayers, the female cosplayers who, who dress in kind of tantalizing, revealing outfits as, as like uh, – famous comic book characters in this world that you're writing about. Um, there was an interesting bit in there about how uh, these cosplayers, some of them used to be paid for, paid by comic book companies 
but now they're paid by comic con uh, promoters and stuff. Is, is that, that was some... a little that bit was a little fictional. Okay, okay. I, I, I needed I needed a way to move this group of uh, of women from one okay. convention to the next. Um, but yeah, that is um, it. Sort of that idea grew out of the tradition of what were called booth babes. All right, um, and, and what's that? Basically, and it, sometimes those comic book companies or or other vendors would hire women to just stand around the booths right. uh, scantily clad and and attract attention <laughs> and mostly guys going to these mostly things guys too, going yeah. to these things yeah I mean it's, it's what you imagine like a boat show would be like right. you know and as the demographics of the audience shifted uh, there was a, a a movement against that and you still there are still those people there there right. are still some some vendors that hire booth babes yeah I've seen a couple, but it's yeah. not it's not as prominent as it was even like five years ago so it's more fan driven now and you still see a lot of cosplayers especially and it's across uh, gender divides but you you often see a lot of uh young ladies dressed as like poison ivy you know the batman villain or harley quinn another one a lot Uh, of harley quinn a lot of harley Harley quinn this is the year of harley quinn (laughs) yeah and in deadpool's deadpool is one of those characters that kind of transcends um uh the divide but uh is there money in fandom too there is and and people are finding interesting ways to to monetize it and like you said it is kind of it is kind of on the fringes because you're dealing with with copyrighted intellectual right. property and uh and sometimes that's people selling costume stuff that they build sometimes it's uh people in artist alley who are less artists and more printmakers right um and again this is something that's sort of being called out it's really been prominent this i feel like this season of conventions people who are just photoshopping images of of copyrighted intellectual property right. or of other people's art yeah yeah um so there there are those those things and then yeah there's a lot of small vendors um at these things doing anything from like weird steampunk hats to <laughs> um you know to little like keychains or stuffed uh yeah, t-shirts yeah. you see all this kind of these weird little riffs on popular things mashups yeah, and it's it's one of those things that I, I think it's in the best interest of the companies that own these intellectual properties to to let some of this happen, you know, to let some amount of non-licensed merchandising go on. I mean, it 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 keeps the fandom invested. It it keeps people um, involved in the properties, right. and um, you know, which is it's a tough thing to do to find ways to keep people involved at the level that some people are involved in in comic books and in like geek culture and one of the big draws to comic cons um uh, celebrity panels or autograph sessions one of the protagonists in your book the 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 mother uh of the young boy alex who kind of we kind of see a lot of it through his eyes but we also see a lot of it through her eyes too valerie um she was uh, she was on a, a popular show. It's kind of like Fringe meets X Files meets Doctor Who. Am I right? That's about right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. All right. Um, and uh, but now she's working on the stage in New York, and she she likes acting with a capital A, you know. But this kind of lifestyle, you know, going to these conventions, and she goes to ones of all different kinds of sizes in this book. Um, there has to be some kind of economic motivator there too right like celebrities like that aren't necessarily a list anymore how much do they depend on these kinds of conventions i mean they're major uh major draws you know mm-hmm. that they're um 
you look at some of these and and the price points for photos or for autographs are are pretty high so these right. are these are folks that are getting brought in and especially now that there are just a ton of comic book conventions out there right um it's like that's that's what marks your convention is who you can get right and and often what that means is a sort of a tier of sub celebrities or or folks that are like big within genre uh genre television or genre film right um but not aren't necessarily a listers mm-hmm. so yeah and I, I think those price points are getting driven up by by the demand you mm-hmm. know when you have like seven comic cons every weekend you've got more people competing for those appearances and uh of course um comic cons are where they they launch movies uh or, or you know really promote these movies and and there's i won't spoil anything about the book but there's a great moment in there where you know there's a push to kind of get this classic show into a movie but i i, I won't get into that but um Furthermore, when it comes to comic books, the relationship between comic books and movies, there's a passage in here that deals with how companies deal with characters that are popular in movies in the second. Do you do you think that's true? Do you think like the popularity of a comic book character who's in movies dictates what the publishers do with the characters? To some extent. Uh, I'm not sure how much that's true anymore. Right. I, I think the myth that uh, people are going to walk out of the movie theater and into the comic book shop has sort of fallen by the wayside. Right. Um, the, the movies haven't driven people to the books, which which is unfortunate because comic, comic books are fantastic. I, I, I think a lot of it is that comic books have a sort of dense continuity right. um, that unless you have unless you have a guide to bring you in, it's tough to just pick up a comic book, uh, you know, to like see an Iron Man movie and pick up a comic book and know what's going on because there's 50 years of character history that are often often need to be parsed a little bit just to read one issue. And so I think in the last, you know, as comic book movies have gotten bigger, that idea that you had to provide a similar experience in the comic books has gone away. So, like, Iron Man probably in the next couple of months will not be Tony Stark in the comics and right. Thor is a, is female in the yeah. comics and um and so on and so forth and and that's it's great it's like i said it is it's kind of unfortunate to me as a comic book fan that more people aren't reading them because i think they're great but i can understand where it's it's a high buy-in cost um it's it's a lot to figure out Right. going in. Yeah, I mean, there are volumes and volumes. It's all heavy. And you know, it seems like every few months something's being rebooted, right? right? Which is confusing to people who just want their superhero shot in two and a half hour increments. Yeah, but I mean, as a longtime fan, I, that's right. one of the things I really like about comics. You know, I right. love reading X-Men and being like, oh yeah, I remember in, in 1992 when that happened <laughs> and this was revealed and blah, blah, blah. But uh, it, it does make it a situation where you can't just pass that off to somebody and be like, do you, Here, try it. Do you think that, in a way, has kind of liberated um, writers and, and, and artists to to kind of just try new things then? I I think so, to some extent. You know, it's, it's also, it's still a weird moment in comics where a lot of stuff is being editorially driven. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to see what some writers are doing within that. Um, but it's... Uh, there is also there's some sort of return to the status quo that that has to happen, you know. Right. Like, 
in a couple of months, Tony Stark won't be an be an Iron Man, but in five years he will be. Yeah, yeah. Um, they always go back. Yeah. yeah, everything goes back, and I, I think it pushes a lot of people out of a lot of writers, particularly out of superhero comics after a couple of years. And you see people go going and doing mm-hmm. creator own stuff, coming up with their own ideas where they're less editorially driven, where they're getting fewer mandates for what has to happen with their stories. Yeah. Um, so. 100,000 Worlds, uh, it feels like something that you've been working toward your whole life in a way because you're such a fan of comics and this culture. Do you ever see yourself going back into this world with another book or are you moving on to other stuff? I'm working on something quite different right now. Okay. Yeah, novel I, I, or? Another novel, yeah. yeah. Um, but this this felt sort of done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, we spent a long time on it. <laughs> Um, both in the initial writing and then and then in editing, and um, there is a lot more written. You know, when in its longest draft, this was probably another hundred pages. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's like a director's cut. <laughs> oh, okay. You're gonna pull a Stephen King a la Stan? Yeah, later? probably not. Um, um, <laughs> I think ultimately everything that got cut deserved to get cut, but a, a lot of like the sort of geekier uh, right. in jokes and references. Um, my editor was wisely like, you know, this is really not gonna make any sense to a lot of people so I, maybe we should let that go i couldn't help but imagine another meta layer to this this becoming a movie someday um who would you would you want to cast jillian anderson and david duchovny <laughs> in the mother and father roles uh it seems a little on the nose right <laughs> that would be on the nose. yeah um i know uh my agent keeps sort of poking gillian anderson on twitter to um, get some sort of <laughs> Like to get her to know here, that the here. book is out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that would be that would be a little, a little much. I think. Yeah, that would be funny. Uh, thanks again, Bob Prohl, for hey, thanks very much to for having the me. WSJ Speakeasy podcast. His new novel, A Hundred Thousand Worlds, uh, a an entertaining, bittersweet uh, mother son road trip tale set against the universe of comic cons and and, and geek culture, uh, just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, This has been the WSJ Speakeasy podcast. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Be sure to check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. Thank you so much. I'm Mike Calia. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.